It's my privilege to speak to you this evening. As Ryan said, my name's James. If I haven't uh, had the privilege of meeting you yet, please, after service, I'd love to say hi and get to know you. Uh, I won't speak uh, very, very long about myself tonight, uh, but if you come after service, I'd love to share a little bit of my story, how I got involved in campus ministry and ended up uh, being a minister full-time. I'd like to do this. I'd like to, um, I think it's safe to say I could speak for our whole team, all the people that have just moved here when I say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for how welcoming and how kind uh, and how wonderful you've all been to us. You've helped us move in. You've uh, spent time welcoming us to your family. So we are grateful beyond words. We are just so glad to be here. Um, so this summer we've had some incredible sermons so far. We've gone through the three R's the last three weeks. Nestor did an incredible job talking about real devotional life, um, and he talked about prayer. And my wonderful wife reminded me of an incredible story. And when I think about prayer and I think about prayer warriors or people that understood prayer, that one of the first people that I think of is a man named Praying Hyde. And if you're wondering why he had that nickname, we're going to get into it. I'll tell you just a brief uh, summary of his life. Praying Hyde was a missionary to a place that some of you just got back from recently. He was a missionary to India in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he, get, he got to India, and the Lord did this. One of his first weeks there, the Lord said, I want you to pray every day for one soul to come to know me. And then spend your day sharing my love and character with people, introducing them to me. And by the end of the day, one person will come to know me. So he did that. And every day he prayed for one soul to know Jesus he spent his day sharing Jesus, and by the end of the day, one person would come to know him. Eventually, this wasn't enough for him, and he upped it to two souls. So he prayed for two souls a day, and by the end of the day, two people knew Jesus. And he spent 30 or 40 years in India, and by the end of his life, he had upped it from three, and then eventually even to four. And I can tell you that the Lord answered his prayers. And by the time he left India at the end of his life, there were thousands and thousands of Indian people who knew Jesus because he understood what it meant to pray. So I'd encourage you to spend time. Uh, you can look his name up on the internet. You can read more about him. I actually have a book about his life with me right here that I'm going to give to somebody in this audience, okay? And all you have to do is raise your hand, and if you can tell me, you can look at your notes if you have to. Last week, Ryan talked about real responsibility and he talked about responsibility being transgenerational. And he used a specific verse. If you can raise your hand and tell me what verse that was or what reference, you don't have to tell me the entire verse, but just the reference, I will give you this book right now. I'll give you a moment. You can look in your notes if you have to. First person gets it. Back there in the back, yes. That is correct. This is yours. Well done. Good note taker. Okay, you got to read it though, okay? All right. Wonderful. Okay. So, we had real devotional life. Scroggins talked about real relationship, and then Ryan talked about real responsibility. So, now that we've finished with the three R's, we're going to go a different direction, and I'm going to open us with a quote from one of my favorite authors. His name is Andrew Murray, and he said this. He said, being servants of all is the highest fulfillment of our destiny as people created in the image of God. Being servants of all is the highest fulfillment of our destiny as people created in the image of God. So tonight we're going to look at 
what it means to be servants of all. Before we do that, I actually also have a book called Humility by Andrew Murray. It's an incredible book. And here's how we're going to give this one away. Does anybody have a birthday this month? Okay. What's it? What date? The 31st? Okay. 27th. Ooh. The 21st. Okay. What's your, when's your birthday? The 15th. Okay. Today is the 23rd, so the closest would be the 27th, am I correct? Or the 21st, 21st. This is yours. You can share too. Once you finish it, you can let her read it. Yeah. All right. Would you pray with me and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come here tonight and to worship you and to learn more about your character. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us all. Lord, would we all leave uh, knowing you better and being closer to you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at godly service. What does it mean to be a servant? And we know that the, the godly service is born out of love. So this takes us to our definition of love. And we say it a lot, and we will say it a lot, but we do that because it's important. So we know that love is unselfishly choosing for the highest good of God and his kingdom. So we see from this that love involves action. It's an active choice. And one of the ways we see love in action is service. There's a simple way to put it. If you don't remember anything else that I say tonight, remember this. Our definition for service is that love finds a need and meets it. Love finds a need and meets it. So obviously it's pretty simple. There's only two parts, right? There's finding the needs and and meeting them. We could stop there tonight, and we would all be better off for it, but we're going to delve into it. So we'll start with that, that first half, finding needs. So we know that to love those around us in the way that Jesus has called us to requires that we adopt a you-before-me attitude, and that we always choose the role of a servant. So this means we have to broaden our view outside of our own needs. Obviously, we can't serve others if we don't first notice how they can be served. It sounds simple, but so often... We get consumed with our own thoughts or tasks or problems. We're so wrapped up in our selfishness that we couldn't possibly notice the needs of others. So we see that selfishness, the opposite of love, is what keeps us from serving those around us. Now part of this, part of understanding how to find needs is just understanding empathy, right? Putting our own feelings aside and learning what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes. That's a That's the first part of it, but I think the more important part is learning to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. The more we listen hard for his voice, the easier it becomes to recognize. The Bible says that man sees what's on the outside, but God looks at the heart. We know that the Holy Spirit in an instant can help us see what he sees. Now, sometimes he may tell you exactly what somebody needs, when they need it, and why they need it. Maybe he'll reveal everything to you, but maybe he won't. Maybe he'll just give you part of it. But our job and our responsibility is to listen and to obey. Uh, a few years ago, I was in a Chi Alpha service. It was one of my, maybe my second year in Chi Alpha. And we, at the end of the service, we're going to have a missions offering. We're going to give this big offering to send these missionaries all over the world. And this was, let me tell you, this was not a normal thing for me to have uh, then or now. But that night, I had a $100 bill in my wallet. Okay? And the only reason I had it is because two days from then, I was going to go to a wedding of some of my friends. And the Lord had told me to give them this $100 as a gift. So I had this $100 in my wallet. And the Lord told me, 
You're going to go down to the altar at the front, and when they do the offering, you're going to put the $100 in. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't, how am I supposed to get another $100 in two days for the wedding? But the Lord didn't tell me how. He just said, go do it. So I went, and I put the $100 in. The service continues. Uh, the service ends, and after the service, a man walked up to me who I'd never seen before, and I've never seen since. When I say he was a man, I mean he was not college-aged. He wasn't a part of our ministry Maybe he was somebody that uh, went to the church that we met in, or he just wandered in that night. But he walked up to me, and he shook my hand, and in his hand was a $100 bill. And he looked at me, and he said, God told me to give you this. And he walked away, and I never saw him again. So what does this show us? Obviously, the man blessed me. Obviously, the Lord provided like he said he would. But we see this, that that guy probably didn't know why I needed the $100 or what I was going to do with it, but he was obedient. And what happened is, when he was obedient, he knew he and I both were closer to the Lord for it. We both understood the Lord's heart a little better. So this leads us to the second part of our definition of service, meeting needs. So once the Holy Spirit is revealed, the needs of another to us, we have to actually be obedient. Uh, if Jesus tells us that we have the, the capacity and capability to lovingly serve someone, and as we learned last week from Ryan, we then have the responsibility to do so. There's the kicker. Once you get good enough at recognizing the voice of the Holy Spirit, finding needs becomes easy. The danger then comes when we find needs that we can meet, but we're too selfish to meet them. We know this. Our definition of obedience uh, says that obedience is doing what Jesus says and doing it quickly because we love him. Obedience is doing what Jesus says and doing it quickly because we love him. So we see this, that delayed obedience isn't obedience at all. It's repentance. Now, obviously, it's a good thing when you realize that you've made a mistake and you should have done something quickly when the Lord asked you to, and you came and you said you're sorry. But that's not obedience. That's just saying you're sorry. It's repentance. So this means that we have to learn to listen carefully and obey quickly. So if you're like me and you've ever found yourself in a moment of selfishness and pride, thinking that uh, you're above serving anybody on earth, then I think we need to remind ourselves that the king of the universe doesn't think he's above it. We see the love and willing service of Jesus written in so many places in the Bible. We'll start in Mark. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, we'll come back to that later, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We know that Jesus was the ultimate meter of needs and the perfect example of a servant. And this is going to be evident in the main passage we're going to look at tonight, which is in Luke 7. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. Or it'll be on the screen. You can follow along. Luke chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 11. It says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. 
Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Come on! He, he raised somebody from the dead. How cool is that? How incredible it is that we get to read about this. So here's the important thing. When we look at Scripture, so often it's easy to, to miss context or to understand what's happening. So at the beginning of this, we see it says, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. So where did he come from? The, the passage we just read uh, is preceded by the story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant. And we know the Bible says that took place in a uh, place called Capernaum. So I have a map. If we, hopefully it's, okay, it's pretty good. So up at the top of the Sea of Galilee, you see Capernaum, okay? And all the way down there where that red dot is, is the town of Nain, where, he, where we, we just were in this story. So we know that it's about a 25 to 30 mile journey from Capernaum to Nain. We don't know uh, exactly when they would have left, but it's more than likely that Jesus and the group of people with him would have left early in the morning, which would have put them at the town of Nain around dusk, which makes sense uh, because dusk was uh, a common time for Jewish funerals in that day. We know that there was a great crowd with Jesus. He's performed a miracle in Capernaum, so some people saw what he did, and they're following him. And I would imagine he gathered some people along the way. But we know that the group heading towards the town with Jesus obviously would have been a group marked by joy and excitement. They're in the presence of the king. We know this as well, that the group of mourners was also quite large. And that day, we know that most of the town would have been with the widow. She would have been leading the, the funeral procession uh, to a burial site that would have been a few miles outside of town. And we know most definitely that their countenance would have been the opposite of the group that was heading towards them, the crowd with Jesus. We know that because of the societal status of this woman, it's deeply significant that Jesus would have compassion on her. We see in the passage that she's a widow. She has no husband, and this is her last son, which means in that time she was destined to live alone with no means of provision. So we see this, that she doesn't appeal to him for help. She doesn't ask him to raise her son from the dead. She doesn't ask him to, to perform a miracle, as so many people do. She was probably so wrapped up in her grief and what she was doing that she wouldn't have even noticed him coming her direction. So we know she didn't ask for help, but we see that Jesus had compassion on her purely out of the goodness of his nature. He saw through the sorrow and the pain and the circumstance, and he told her and he showed her that he cared about her future. Here's some cool things to note. The first thing Jesus does is he addresses her tears. Now, Jesus, more than anybody who's ever lived, understands that there's a time for weeping. So he doesn't just tell her to stop crying. So often you and I, uh, when we're in terrible circumstances and our friend or family member comes to us uh, and they're weeping over something, the best we can do is to say, hey, it's going to be okay. You don't need to cry. Everything's going to be all right. But we have no power to actually change the circumstance that's making them cry. We see this, Jesus doesn't say, stop crying, and that's it. He takes away her occasion for weeping. We see this as well, that Jesus speaks to the boy as though the boy could hear him. And Jesus raises somebody from the dead three different times in the Bible. This is one of those times. And each of those times, he speaks to them as though they could hear. The boy's body was dead, but Jesus wasn't speaking to his body. He was speaking to his soul. We see that Jesus' compassion led him to action. Out of his love for the woman, he did what he was able to do in a moment to meet her needs. 
This is the, the, first time, uh, the first time in the Bible that Jesus raises somebody from the dead. So when he performs this miracle, he reveals a little bit of his power, right? People now know that he, he's capable of doing that. But more importantly, I think, if people were paying attention, he would have revealed a little bit of his character. And everybody that was in that crowd that day would have walked away having been drawn closer to him. So this is important. This is the same thing that happens when we serve others in love. When we do that, the character of Jesus is revealed in us and through us. His power over sin and selfishness at the forefront. And because of it, people are drawn into closer relationship with him. So, so far we've seen that to serve the way Jesus does requires that we look outside of ourselves. Now, if we study the life of Jesus, it will become evident quickly that it also requires that we're willing to sacrifice. As a good friend of ours who's a missionary... Uh, He's a missionary that travels all over the world. He was born to missionary parents in Africa, in Kenya specifically. His name is Dick Brogdon. Uh, And Dick Brogdon tells a story. He tells this African, this old African tale of a king who had a problem in his kingdom. Now, the king's problem may seem silly, but the king's problem was that he had a chicken thief. Chickens were disappearing all over the kingdom. So the king says, here's what we're going to do. In order to promote justice and safety, when we find the chicken thief, we're going to give him 10 lashes with this whip that's laced with iron pieces as punishment. Chickens continue to disappear, so the king upped the penalty to 50 strokes. More chickens were lost. The king then raises the penalty to 75 strokes. Chickens are yet stolen. The king, full of wrath, sets the punitive measure at 100 strokes of the whip, a punishment so severe that surely even the strongest man in the kingdom wouldn't survive. Eventually, the thief is found. And to the, the awe and the dismay of the kingdom, not least the king, it turns out that the chicken thief was the king's mother. And the kingdom is stunned, right? What is the king going to do? His word can't be broken. Justice must be served. But how can a man brutalize his own mother? Would he uphold judgment and scorn mercy? Would he be merciful and make a mockery of justice? In theology, we call this the divine dilemma. Eventually, the day of punishment came. The king was sitting on his throne, and he says, Take the thief, tie her to the post, and give her all 100 strokes of the whip. And if you do refrain, you you do so at the cost of your own life. The crowd is stunned as the king's mother was led and tied to the post. One more thing, the king commanded softly. And he took off his royal robe, and he descended from his royal dais, and he walked over to his mother, and he wrapped his arms around her, placed her head in his shoulder, and he looked at the executioner, and he said, now, beat the thief. This is the gospel, that the king of all glory, all power and majesty, would descend from his heavenly throne. He came, and he walked among us, and he wrapped his arms around you and I. You and I who are so selfish and full of rebellion and wickedness. And he said to the father, now beat the thief. We see this evident in scripture in 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. It says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5.8 says it this way, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see that Jesus was willing to sacrifice everything 
so that we could have relationship with the Father again. So the question for us tonight is, what are we willing to sacrifice so that those around us would become closer to Jesus? Service, if we do it right, always involves a sacrifice of some kind. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's your image, what people think of you. Maybe it's your money, your time, your possessions. In the same way that Jesus died for all, are we willing to serve everyone we meet so that he would receive the reward of his suffering? So that people could be reconciled to him. That's what Chi Alpha means. It means Christ's ambassadors. And our, our, our cry is this, that we would reconcile people to Jesus. So if we're going to do that, we must be willing to serve even people who are hard to love. Strangers, enemies, people who have wronged us in word or deed, we're called to serve them all. Now here's the thing, Jesus won't force us to love or to sacrifice. We have to choose love and choose to sacrifice. Because as we saw at the beginning, love is always a choice. The best way that we can meet the needs of our friends and those around us is to give the entirety of ourselves to Christ, to die to our selfishness and to become a new creation, committed to conforming to his image. We know that we have to be emptied so that he can fill us to overflowing, so that we can love and serve those around us. Now, I think uh, I touched on it very briefly in the, one of the first passages that we read, but I think one, one important thing that's left out of our definition of service is humility. We know this, that humility is the key that unlocks a servant heart. Humility is a key that unlocks a servant heart. In Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So we know that learning to be humble or learning humility means getting closer to Jesus. The great philosopher Thomas Aquinas says it this way. He says, if you're looking for an example of humility, look at the cross. So we know that humility, if we define it, humility means having a right understanding of oneself. And I think in this context, that shows us two things. Firstly, when we look at ourselves in the light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, then we have to realize that we're not above serving anybody in the world. Secondly, we have to realize that we wouldn't be able to adequately recognize people's needs, as we talked about at the beginning, without the direction of the Holy Spirit. And what we're able to do to lovingly meet people's needs is only through the power and the help of Jesus. So this means that none of this is about us. That's both uh, reassuring and troubling at the same time. But none of this is about us. There's no reason to boast or even to tell others of the service once it's happened. There's a great author. His name is Henry Drummond. And Henry Drummond wrote a small essay, a short essay, and it's called The Greatest Thing in the World. And in it, he gives an exposition uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the, the chapter that Paul wrote on love. Uh, it was written so long ago that it's now in the public domain. You can search it on Google. It's free to download as a PDF. It's maybe 14 pages. But in it, he briefly talks about humility. And he says, And then, have, having learned all of that, you have to learn this further thing, humility. To put a seal on your lips and to forget what you have done. After you have been kind 
after love has stolen forth into the world and done its beautiful work, go back into the shade again and say nothing about it. Love hides even from itself. Love waves even self-satisfaction. Love hides even from itself. Love waves even self-satisfaction. So we see here that if we learn to be humble, we'll realize that it's not about us. It's all about Jesus and what he wants to do in the lives of those around us. So if you're tracking with me, you're thinking, okay, where do I get started? So let's look at some practical ways that we can start to learn to serve. I've been blessed uh, to be around a lot of people that are servant-hearted or understand what service means and what it looks like. Uh, I'm lucky to have two parents that uh, love Jesus, that raised me to love Jesus. I think almost everything I've learned about service, uh, I've learned from my father. He's uh, an airline pilot now, but he used to be an electrician. He used to work in construction. And so in his free time, what he does is often there'll be people in the church or people he meets uh, randomly that uh, can't afford to have expensive electricians or contractors come and fix things on their house. Uh, maybe they're like the widow in the chapter before. He's, he's worked on some houses of some older single ladies that just don't know what to do. But he'll spend his time fixing their electrical problems, doing anything he can to meet their needs. Uh, a few years ago when Harvey hit, he took off a week from work and literally worked himself sick. He worked from before the sun came up to after the sun came down, helping people to rebuild their homes. But he understood that the Lord had given him a gift, and he learned some skills along the way, and he saw the opportunities that the Holy Spirit uh, showed him, and he did what he could do in the moment, and he helped meet people's needs, and thus drew them closer to Jesus. There's some incredible people even in this room in the last few weeks that I've gotten to watch, uh, people like Andrew and Nestor, uh, people like Justin and the worship team, people that I can tell you would probably most rather uh, be spending their days doing other things than coming here really early to make sure everything is set for tonight, to, to lovingly set things up and prepare so that we could hear from Jesus this evening. But the point is this, we may be sitting here thinking, I don't know where to start. I don't know if I woke up tomorrow, how, how can I do things uh, so extravagant or so um, noteworthy as those things? But here's the cool thing is we get to start small. Peter Marshall says this, small deeds actually done are better than great deeds planned. Small deeds actually done are better than great deeds planned. Here's where we can start. Most of us are in college, and that means that most of us have roommates, okay? And so if you had to guess over the many years that I've been in college and worked in college ministry, if you had to guess the number one thing that I've heard roommates uh, that tore roommates apart or that would frustrated them or they would complain about one another, what would you guess it is? Something about living together. Yep, 100%. Doing the dishes. If I had a dollar for every time I heard a college student say, man, my roommate, they cook and they just leave the, stove, the pots on the stove. They won't do their dishes ever. Here's what I'll tell you. Uh, I've lived, before I was married to my wonderful wife, I've lived with roommates for a long time. Uh, and the Lord eventually taught me this. It doesn't matter if they're their dishes. It doesn't matter if they're your dishes. It doesn't matter if they're somebody else's. Just do the dishes. It's a simple place to start, to lovingly serve. Uh, maybe you could do this. Maybe instead of being frustrated when you go to do laundry and they left all their stuff in the dryer, instead of just throwing it on the ground and getting it out of the way, maybe you could fold it for them. Maybe you could mow the lawn unasked. Maybe I, this is maybe crazy. Maybe clean the bathroom 
without being asked or put on a schedule. Here's the cool thing. I, I think uh, a brilliant and godly man by the name of Eli Stewart once told me this, that God always gives us enough to share. He always gives us enough to share. Now, notice I didn't add any qualifiers. I didn't say God always gives us enough food to share. He always gives us enough money to share. It doesn't matter what it is. If God's given you something, it's enough to share with those around you. So maybe that means that you'll notice somebody, uh, when we go out to eat, doesn't have enough money to buy their meal. Maybe the next time uh, when it's in winter and it gets cold outside and you notice somebody without a coat, let them borrow your coat, sure, maybe, but maybe just give them your coat. Maybe give them an umbrella or your, your raincoat when it's raining. These are simple things. Maybe hold the door for people. Let them go first in line. Maybe the Lord or the Holy Spirit would lead you the next time you're at the grocery store to pay for the groceries of the person behind you. Maybe we could be kind while driving, even when other drivers aren't kind to us. Here's something that I learned a long time ago that I like to put into practice. We could all do it tonight. Tonight, what's probably going to happen is we're going to close the service. We're going to leave here. We're going to go hang out and get something to eat. So maybe you were like me in the past, and you would run to the car, and you'd call shotgun, and you'd get there first so you could get the best seat. But maybe the Lord's telling us tonight, maybe we could run to the car and get there first so that we could sit in the back seat and give somebody else the place of honor. Here's the thing. These are all simple things, and God is calling us to do what we are able to do, but he's going to help us do it. As we move to a close, the worship team can come. I think tonight, all of us in this room are in one of three categories. I think there's those of us who need to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit as he makes needs known to us. Maybe you don't yet know what, it, what it's like to discern his voice. Uh, or maybe you've been like me in the past and you've just chosen not to listen to it. If that's you tonight, I think you should ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to those around you. The next time you're uh, at the grocery store, the next time you're hanging out with your friends, the next time you go to eat with somebody, would you ask the Lord to just quickly to open your eyes and to speak to you and to show you what's going on around you, to take a, just a quick moment to step outside of yourself, your own needs and, and wants and thoughts, and just see what the Holy Spirit could do. If... Secondly, I think there's those of us who know how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, but often we aren't obedient. We've, we've heard him speak, but we say, uh, no, I don't want to do that. Not right now, maybe later. Pastor Landon did an incredible job on Sunday of, of speaking to this. He, he said there's often things in our lives that we hold on to. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's our time, maybe it's our possessions. It's an area of our lives that we say, Lord, you can have anything, but not that. That, one, that thing is mine. I think we need to ask him to reveal those areas to us where we're selfishly holding on to things that we could freely give to others in the service of the king. I think thirdly, there's some of us who understand how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. We understand what it looks like to serve, but maybe our motive has been mi mixed up. We have the wrong motive. As we talked about at the beginning, we know that the Lord looks at the heart. He looks at your motive. Maybe we've served people around us so that we would look a certain way or because it makes us feel a certain way, but we haven't yet learned humility. I think we need to ask Jesus to help us to learn to let go of selfishness and to teach us what it means to be humble.